Hello. My name is Kent Edwards, and I am pr privileged today to be able to bring God's Word to you. But then Pastor Brian probably already told you that. What he might not have told you is that my wife, Nolan, and I have known Brian and Krista for many, many years. And I am thrilled that you have allowed them to give leadership to your church, to give spiritual direction to your life. They're great people with a heart for God, a passion for his church, and for you. So thank you for looking after them. Value them. Because uh, people of this caliber, I can tell you, are hard to find. So, I know that we have not met, but one of the things we have in common is a love for God's Word. Um, so let me ask you a question. What is your favorite Bible verse? Take a moment and think about it. What passage of the Bible do you value, do you appreciate, um, perhaps more than any other? For me, it may be this one in John chapter 1. Because in John chapter 1, we read that he came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born of, not of human descent, nor of a human's decision, or of a husband will, but born of God. The word of flesh became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Oh, I love that passage because it speaks of Jesus when it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I love this passage because it also said, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's how we get to experience the grace of God, is it not? As we believe in his name, we can be saved. Amen? Yeah, I love that verse. But it does make me ask a question. What does it mean when John tells us that the requirement to become the children of God is to believe in his name? What does it mean to believe in him? Because there's a sense in which almost everyone believes in him, right? I mean, they believe he existed as a man, he lived and died. He's probably got the most famous name in all of human history. Uh, many, many billions of people have heard his name. Does that mean they are children of God? Does knowing about him make you, mean that you have believed in him? What does it mean to believe in Christ? Well, it's interesting in John chapter 1 that uh, I think we get a glimpse into the answer of that as we see what happens. In John chapter 1 verse 15, we begin to read about John the Baptist, uh, one of the most critical people in the Bible. John testifies about him, uh, we hear. He cries out saying in verse 15 that this was he of whom I said he comes after me 
but has surpassed me because he was before me. So John begins his, John the Baptist begins his ministry by saying that uh, he who comes after me has surpassed me. There's one coming who's better than me. Now listen, John the Baptist was a, by Jesus' own testimony, a tremendous preacher. As he began his ministry, some of you may know, that he began preaching repentance, and the crowds came from all around. This was a, a new spiritual awakening in the life of Israel, and he was one of the most famous people of his day. I mean, he was, he was living today, he'd be on the A circuit for doing seminars. He'd be in, in stadiums packed with people. This was the kind of status that John the Baptist had. And yet, um, we read in verse 19 of John chapter 1 that this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask who he was. Verse 21, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? No, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, who are you? Because he'd already told them, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. But for them to ask this question, for the religious leaders of the day, are you the Christ? Are you Messiah? Are, are you Elijah? Are, are you a prophet? meant that they held him in highest esteem. They thought he was an unbelievable servant of God. And he keeps saying, no, I'm not. Finally, they said, who are you? Verse 22, give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. No, he says, I'm, I'm not someone important. I'm just introducing you to someone who is more important. I baptize with water, he says in verse 26. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. And this one that comes after me, he's saying, notice what it says in verse 27. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So in this narrative that is beginning in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is clear when he says, I am not the Messiah. Don't give me the adoration that, you, that he deserves. When he comes, he's the one who will be important. That's the setup. That is the beginning of the rest of this chapter. And we read what happens next in verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Oh, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, 
He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified, John the Baptist says, this is the Son of God. Notice what happens here. John the Baptist knows the Messiah is coming. And, and although he's having a worldwide, well, a nationwide impact in his ministry, probably the most prominent person in religious circles of his day, when he sees Jesus, he points everyone to him and says, that's the one. He's the Messiah. Now, think about that just for a minute. What do you think happens when John the Baptist, who's the most popular man, when he sees Jesus and recognizes him clearly as the Messiah, as the Christ, says, he's the one that's way more important. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. What do you think happened to the crowds? What do you think happened to John the Baptist's popularity? What do you think happened to the size of his ministry? It shrunk. He sacrificed everything he had because he saw the Messiah. He gave it all up. Interesting, isn't it? Well, let's keep going. Because we read the next day in verse 35, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said to them, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Hmm. Here's a second scene. John the Baptist's disciples are with him. Obviously, they felt very high, thought very highly of John the Baptist. They'd committed themselves to learning from him, to sit under his teaching, to gain everything they could from him. But when they saw this other man, and John the Baptist said, look, there's the Christ, there's the Messiah, what did they do? They turned away and followed Jesus. twice. And we read in the text, the, um, that Andrew, verse 40, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew brings uh, Peter, uh, that is Simon in his old name, brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, Hey, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. <laughs> what happens here? Peter gets introduced to Jesus. And Jesus says, um, you're called Cephas, right? Yeah. From now on, you're going to be known as Peter. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, um, 
you and I have never met, but if I was to meet you in person and to greet you and say, you know what, I know you just told me your name is Bob, but you look like a Fred to me. From now on, you will be called Fred. Would you let me do that? Would you let me change your name from Bob to Fred? <laughs> I don't think so. I think you'd say, who do you think you are? That's what we expect Peter to say. I just met you. How, who do you think you are to change my name? No one has the right to change my name. Well, who gave Peter his name in the first place? Who gave you your name? It's your parents gave you the name. They are over you in authority. So you take the name that they give you. That's their right. They're an authority over you. When Peter met Jesus, and Jesus said, I want to change your name, Peter said, it's okay. I'll let you do it. In that act, he surrendered himself to the person of Jesus. Why? He didn't let anyone else do that before, before he met Jesus or after Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, he understood from Andrew, was the Messiah. And when he knew who Jesus was, he gave, submitted himself to him fully and completely. Hmm. That was number three. Number four, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. I'm reading it now in verse 43 of John chapter 1. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Guess what Philip did? He followed him. Once Philip knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He gave up everything, changed the direction not only of his day but of his life, and surrendered and followed Jesus. And yet we move on. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the, the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. We found him. We found the Messiah. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel wasn't entirely sure about this. Nazareth, he says. You say he comes from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Ah, Philip said, come and see. Um, and when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, verse 47, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Yeah, true skeptic. And Jesus answered, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Realizing that it would have been impossible for Jesus to have that knowledge unless he was someone special. Unless what he heard was correct. That Jesus was the Messiah. He says that Nathanael declared... In verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King 
of Israel. As soon as he understood who Jesus was, he called him king. He surrendered to him. Time after time after time in this passage, everyone responded to the knowledge that Christ was the Messiah by surrendering their life, their priorities, their objectives, by surrendering everything they held dear to him. Why? Why do we see all these five instances in John chapter 1 of people when they finally understand who Jesus is, why do they immediately surrender everything and follow him completely? Why? Ah, see, the answer, I think, is found in the earlier part of John chapter 1. Because here we read that the Apostle John begins writing this letter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Does that first verse remind you of anything? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Yeah. Reminds you probably of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what the Apostle John is telling us here? As he begins in the first verse of this great gospel of John, he writes and says, you want to know who Jesus is? He is the one who is the creator God. He is the one who in Genesis 1.1 stood on the edge of all creation and said, let there be light. And because of the power of his word, there was light. Everything that was made was made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the one sovereign over all creation. He is the one of whom Paul will say in the book of Colossians that he is the firstborn over all creation. He has preeminent, preeminence over everything in this world because he is God in the flesh. Do you remember when the disciples were crossing the lake and a storm came up? And those fishermen, professional fishermen, we're in a storm so bad they thought they were going to die. They woke Jesus up and they said, don't you care if we drown, teacher? And Jesus stood up, put his foot on the edge of that boat and spoke to creation, be still, and it was still. At that moment, the text tells us that they were afraid. They had been afraid of the storm. But when they saw the power of Jesus, when they realized that the one in the boat with them, that Jesus Christ had power over creation, he was God, very God, they were in awe of him. Everyone in the Bible who has come face to face with the person of God has responded with fear and adoration. They have stepped back. They have submitted because he is God. And John wants us to know that he is God. And he's come in this world. Why? 
because it says, um, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Jesus is God who came to earth to give us light. What does it mean when John uses that metaphor, light? I believe it means that he gives us hope. Have you ever seen the difference that light makes? Have you ever been in utter blackness? Total blackness. I've been many times when I have experienced that. But one time was a few years ago when I was with Crosstalk in Romania. We were there for two weeks of teaching and in the weekend in between, a few of us went by van for hours from where we were meeting up into the mountains. They wanted me to be able to see what they called the Bear's Cave. It was called that because uh, bears hibernated there for centuries. Um, and the winter came and those cold mountains, that's where they went to spend the winter. Anyway, we went to see it and we paid our money and got our tickets, and followed the guide. and There's a little path with lights along the way. It was one of those dark caves that, you know, have, I can never keep them straight, stalactites and slag, stalagmites. I don't know which is which, but, you know, the pointy things that come down or stick up. They're all around us. We had to stay on that narrow path or we'd be in trouble. We came to a bend in the path and the guide told us to turn off all our cell phones and everything. And then he hit the switch and the lights went out. You couldn't see thing. Everything was black. Nothing. You couldn't see a thing. And guess what we all did when he turned out the lights? All of us in that line. Nothing. You couldn't move. There's no way we could have found our way back. There would be no escape because we were trapped in darkness. And we all held our breath until... He turned on the lights. I remembered that as we continued our tour because he told us that many years ago, hundreds of years before, one winter there was an earthquake and the only entrance to that cave had been blocked. And as we walked along that path, we saw the skeletons of bear after bear after bear after bear. All of them died in blackness, without hope, no way of escape. We came to the end of the path and we turned to go head back to the entrance. And there at that turnaround was the biggest skeleton of a bear I have ever seen. It was ferocious and scary, even in death. But even he could not escape because he was caught in the blackness. There was no way out. Likewise, John wants us to know that the Creator God came to give us light, to turn on the, the light switch so that we could find our way out of our sin and out of our, out of our darkness, out of our despair. He came that that might happen. And, and He was the light of the world. 
And not only that, to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. He didn't just come to lead us out of the cave. He came to adopt us. Tell me, what does it mean to be a child? What privileges does it, do you have as a child if you have a wonderful father? What difference does it make if you have a strong, loving family? What do we give our children? Because we want to be good parents. We give them food. We give them clothing. We give them shelter. We give them education. Uh, we teach them. The Creator God came to give us hope, but also to provide for our essential needs. He clothes us. If He clothes the lilies of the field, He will clothe us. We don't need to clothe us. We don't need to worry about whether we what we will eat or drink. We ask for every day for our daily bread, and He gives us our daily bread and cake and jam, often besides. He teaches us through His Word. He, we have love and support from the family of God. Everything a good family provides for their child, our Heavenly Father provides for us. All we have to do to receive all that Christ wants to give is to believe in Him. What does it mean to believe in Christ? It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just knowing that He was a man who came and lived and died. It's not just showing up at church. How do we know if we have truly believed in Christ? Because that's what it says we need to do. It says very clearly, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to begin, become a, children, a child of God. How do we know we have saving faith? You know how? Because, as we saw earlier, in five different instances, every person who realized that Jesus was who John, the, John the, the, the gospel writer, told us he was, the actual Son of God. When they realized that, they gave up everything to follow Him. Do you understand what that means? It means we have not believed in Him, in Christ, if we have not surrendered everything to Him. Because if you really believe that He is God in the flesh who has come to give us hope and adopt us as His children. If you really believe that, you would give up everything for Him. And if we don't, we really haven't fully believed in who He is. Some of us think He's more of a um, genie. You know, the one that's in a bottle, according to myth. You rub the, the bottle, and now comes the genie, and he gives us everything we want. We come to Jesus because we want a better marriage. We come to Jesus because uh, we want a better job. We come to Jesus because we're sick. We come to Jesus because 
he will be like some kind of cosmic Coke machine. That if we deposit the prayers often enough, or our tithes often enough, if we do stuff good enough, then there's kind of a reciprocal arrangement. And, and we give him what he wants, and he'll give us what we want. If we rub his tummy, if we rub the lamp, then we get what we want. We come to him to get. No. No, that's not, that's not saving faith. That's bartering. That's selfish. Some people come to God because uh, they seem as some kind of a genie who will make their life better. Others come to Jesus thinking that he's maybe uh, some kind of a consultant. You know what a consultant is. A consultant is someone who comes to give you advice how to make your company better, but, but the consultant works for you. The consultant comes and uh, gives suggestions, but you get to decide whether you'll follow through with them or not. A lot of what consultants say often is good, and we'll take about 80% of that. And the other 20 will say, no, nah, that doesn't fit. You don't know my culture. You don't know the kind of company that I'm involved in. You don't understand my workplace well enough. So I appreciate your attempts, but uh, I'll take 80% of what you say, but not the other 20. Some of us come to Jesus that way. You're a consultant to my life. I mean, I, I like what you've written. There's some, there's some really good stuff in here, and, and, um, and often it's true, and you know that my life is better. I mean, I'm about 80% better because I'm about 80% committed to you know, what this is all about. But um, 20% now, I'm, uh, now I, uh, whatever I decide to click on, I can decide to click. I don't think there's really harm in that. I, you know, <laughs> Bible's a long time ago. What do they know about Today, uh, I got to make a sale, and I'll make a sale, and uh, eh, I may not, you know, cross my fingers when I, you know, sign the documents, because it's not entirely kosher. But you know, it's pretty well. I mean, I'm 80% committed. Um, the way that I treat my spouse, the way that I am with my kids. I mean, <laughs> I appreciate so much, and I've, you know, my life is enormously better. I'm 80% better. See, that's. None of those five people, none of in those five instances, when people fully understood who Christ was, did they say, I give you 80%, or I'll follow you only if you meet my requirements. No, that's not saving faith. What it means to truly believe in Christ is that if Jesus, since I know who you are, I surrender all. I give my all. My life is no longer my own. It belongs to you. We are like the Apostle Paul. I pour out my life like a drink offering. It is yours. Every hour, every day. It's been said, truly, if he is not Lord of all, then Jesus is not Lord at all. What does that mean? I mean, this week, what does it mean? How, how will you and I demonstrate our belief in Christ this week? 
does it mean that um, we have to go be missionaries? become a pastor, go to seminary or something, give up your secular job to become something else? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, God, what you tell me, I will do. Not 60%, 80%, 100%. If you tell me something, I will listen. I will obey. Because you're God. How else could I respond? It means that you purchase my life. And I want to do everything I can to advance your kingdom and your purposes. These disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus, to help Jesus accomplish Jesus' purposes, not their purposes, his purposes. So, one of the passages that has spoken to me through the years that would relate to this and what it means to truly follow the Lord, give ourselves to Him, comes from Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul talks about salvation. And he says, For it's by grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Through faith... And it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You and I know you can't earn your salvation. It's simply a gift given by the great Creator God. For we are, verse 10, listen to this, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, it's, God has provided work for me to do that he's asked me to fulfill. He has made me, he has gifted me, he has allowed me to make a meaningful contribution to his work in the world. But he says to the Ephesians, which God has prepared for, in advance for us to do, not just me, all of us. Friends, God has given you gifts and abilities. Everyone who's a believer has spiritual gifts. He's given you talents, ways that you can contribute to the kingdom of God. Look. Look around you in your church. There's not a huge number of people, which means that um, everyone's got to... Um, Step up. Everyone's got to do the good works that God has prepared for them in advance. You see, the church is not a place where um, we go to uh, browse. It's not a mall where we go to shop for what we want. Um, it's not a play where we sit down and observe other people up on stage. It's a place where we all roll up our sleeves and serve the, the Lord our God, the one who saved us to do the good works he's made us to do because he is God. 
I give up my Friday nights. I give up my Thursday nights. I give up my priorities. Sometimes I don't watch the football game because I can serve the king of kings. And by the way, as we do that, we're not earning our salvation. You can't ever do that. But you do give evidence of it. When you pour out your life as a drink offering to help others, to help this church be the beacon of light God intends it to be in your community, you are testifying to others and reaffirming to yourself that you have saving faith. You know that you have believed in him. Because like all these other five instances, because you have heard who Jesus is, you've surrendered everything, even Friday nights, even Sunday mornings, to follow him. That's what God doesn't just call Pastor Brian to do, or me, but to everyone who believes in him. We have a great God who has given us more than we can ever imagine. All we have to do in response is believe in him. And when we know how great and grand he is, we surrender everything for his sake, for his glory, until we see him face to face. Thanks so much for your time today. I am encouraged and challenged every time I see everyone in John chapter 1 responding by giving their lives to Christ when they realize who he is. May you and I do that as well. This week, this year, next year, for eternity. Amen? Amen.